Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. Welcome, guys. Uh, thank you for gathering with us for worship. That's what we're here to do. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. The question is, do we know what that is? Right? Do we know what that word worship means? Do you know that you're doing it right now? The songs are over. Do you know that you're still doing it right now? No matter what. As you are always. No matter what. That's what we're going to talk about today. Now take out your Bibles and turn to John chapter 4. We're picking back up in verse 16 with the story we started last week and Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. You can find it on page 889 in the Pew Bible in front of you. It is not particularly difficult to figure out what this passage is about. When I start with a passage, I read it a lot, a lot, a lot, and I start writing down key words, and I've talked about this before. Don't forget one of your key principles of interpretation. I'm always looking for repetition, and I'm always looking for repetition. Right? Repetition reveals relevance. <clears throat> it, it tells you. It's like a flashing light demanding your attention. Hey, this is what this is about. This is important. And these few short verses, in them we have the word worship repeated in some form ten times. This, is, this section is just obviously all about worship, which is timely and always relevant because your life is all about worship, whether you know it or not. Last week we introduced this story. We called it The Woman and the Water. Verse 4 told us that Jesus had to, he, he must travel to, through Samaria to get to Galilee. We saw how geographically that wasn't necessarily true. That must, must then mean something else. I think this is a divine must. He must travel through Samaria because this woman is there. And he is going to find her. And he is going to save her. And so we cannot forget, as we begin, the great grace and love of God for this woman, his daughter, chosen before the foundation of the world. So this whole episode and conversation is contained and couched within the context of that love and grace. You think about it, this, this is really cool. This is Jesus' most important and most clear teaching on the nature of true worship. And he gives it to an unnamed, immoral Samaritan woman. She is the wrong gender. She is the wrong ethnicity. She is the wrong religion. And yet Jesus comes for her. And he reserves some of his most important teaching for her. Not for Nicodemus, not for the Pharisees, not even his disciples. They're gone. It's for this woman. So it's remarkable. It's wonderful. And so he's going to talk to her about worship, but he doesn't start there. And it's important for us to see how he gets there. Remember, it's noon. It is the desert. Jesus is hot. He's weary. He's thirsty. And so he asks this woman in verse 7 for a drink. She is shocked because she knows men do not talk to women and Jews do not talk to Samaritans. But here is this Jewish man talking to her. And then Jesus reveals his great love for her and what he says next. He reveals to us the priorities of life. Physical water is important. It's physical life. Without it, you die. But it's still not the most important. Because physical life, without spiritual life, will result only in physical, spiritual, and eternal death. And so Jesus gets straight to the point. Straight to what matters most. Are we concerned about what matters most? 
Months ago, I was going through some of Piper's Roman sermons, and it really stuck with me where he said, as only Piper can do it, he said, how can I persuade you and win you to care about the most important things in the world? And he probably did this, because Piper does that a lot. That's Piper's thing. That's what I want for you. That's what Jesus wants for this woman. And so verse 10, he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. He continues in verse 14. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. So, this woman has come to the well, and she has been offered this living water, life, spiritual life, which is only found in Jesus Christ. And we left the story with the woman asking for the water though she's still not completely grasping who Jesus is and what he offers. She asks for the water, but she's still thinking in physical terms. She still doesn't quite yet grasp the superiority of the spiritual. She still doesn't understand her great soul thirst and how it can be satisfied only in Christ. And so what could seem like a sudden and random shift to a discussion of worship, it's not random or sudden at all. For that's the very thing that they have already been talking about. Her problem has been a worship problem. Your problem, whatever it is, my problem, is ultimately a worship problem. Because worship is life. Worship is what you were created for. You are wired for worship. And so the question is never, are you worshiping? The question is always, what are you worshiping? And so my goal this morning is to convince you of that reality, to convince you that you are always worshiping, to continue to move us away from thinking exclusively of the wonderful songs that we just sang as worship. They are worship, but it's just a part of it. Or what we do here for an hour on Sunday mornings as worship. This is worship. It's just a part of worship. I want us to see that that from him and to him and through him is everything. That through Christ, all things were created through him and for him. And that, that includes you and me. And that thus then includes our entire life. The whole thing is meant to be lived, quorum Deo, before his face, in his presence, in reference to him, and for his glory. That's worship. And that's where you will find meaning and identity, rest and peace. So we're going to work on our theology of worship this morning through this amazing interaction. Last week, remember, was the water of eternal life. The result will be worship. That's this week. And then following that will be witness. That's next week. So water results in worship, results in witness. Four points this morning. We start with a problem. The woman's problem and our problem. Point number one, your sin prevents God's worship or your worship of God. Point number two, you must worship God in truth. Point number three, you must worship God in spirit. And point number four, Jesus Christ is both who and how you worship. That's that's our goal this morning. Worship is not about what you want. God doesn't exist for your happiness. You exist for his. Is your main goal in coming here this morning to make yourself happy or to make God happy? Is it in fulfilling yourself or is it in honoring the Lord? Where's our focus this morning? Is it on ourselves or is it on him? Let's read John chapter 4. We're going to pick up in verse 
16. Jesus has offered her the spiritual water. She's asked for the water, but she's still thinking primarily in physical terms. Look at where Jesus goes and look at what he does. Try and sort this out. John chapter 4, verse 16 through 26. Pay attention. This is what God wants to say to you today. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Stop there, and if you would, bow with me. Let's, let's begin with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak, and that you speak to us through your word. Father, we thank you that we have the opportunity, the wonderful privilege now, to hear, not from me, but from you and, and from your word. So Father, I ask humbly, please, that you would help me to preach faithfully in accordance with your word. Father, as we see that worship is not about us, but about you, as we see that, as I see and learn that preaching is not about me, but about you, Father, set us all aside, set our own pride, our own um, selfish hearts aside, and fix and focus our minds on Jesus Christ. Father, show us who he is and how good and gracious and glorious he is. Father, convince us of that and then move us to love and to know and to hope and to, to worship him. Father, help the hearing of your word. Help the preaching of your word. Apart from you, we can do nothing. So we ask for your Spirit's help in this time, and we ask it only in the name of Jesus. Amen. Point number one, your sin prevents God's worship. Look at verse 16 in the context, in the course of this conversation. Why is this where Jesus goes? Why do we move from a conversation concerning the water of the Holy Spirit that satisfies the soul's thirst and wells up to eternal life to a conversation concerning this woman's marital status. Why the move from water to husband? Go call your husband. I have no husband. You're right. You have had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What's, what's Jesus doing? Well, we've already established that he's loving this woman, and he's pursuing this woman, and he's saving this woman. Well, what does this um, sixth husband, who is not a husband, have to do with that? Well, ultimately, everything. Jesus has, has offered this woman life. She cannot yet see her need for the life that he offers. She is physically thirsty, sir, give me this water, but she is far more significantly spiritually thirsty. The only difference is she's very aware of her physical thirst, but entirely ignorant of her spiritual thirst. Here's one of the great paradoxes and tragedies of our, our state. We can be very easily aware of our physical uh, thirst and have no idea that we are spiritually thirsty. 
And so here, Jesus is lovingly and graciously helping her to understand the true nature of her need, the true depth of her thirst. How do we know that she's spiritually thirsty? Well, consider how the conversation continues in 17 and 18. Jesus asks a very clear question. She gives a very vague answer. She clearly wants to hide the truth. But the one who stands before her will shortly reveal himself in chapter 14 to be the truth. Right? You cannot hide the truth from the one who is truth. You cannot hide the truth from the one who is God himself. And Jesus demonstrates his godness through his omniscient knowledge of her life. I don't know you. You've had five husbands. You're on your sixth. And you're not even married to him. Jesus is God. We're going to see that at the end as well. But some commentators can't quite figure out what Jesus is doing here. But I don't think it's that complicated. There's a direct connection between her request in verse 15 and his command in verse 16. She asks for the wrong water because she does not yet thirst for the right water. And so Jesus is awakening her thirst. He's drawing her attention to her need because she will see no need for the living water that Jesus offers until she first has a true sense of her guilt and a true consciousness of the sin that necessitates that water. And so Jesus, is, he's addressing her conscience. Jesus is, is using the law to show her need for the gospel, the, the living water that he brings. And that is because sin is always a barrier to worship. Sin prevents the worship of God. Sin doesn't stop worship, but sin skews worship. It redirects that worship in the wrong direction. We saw last week how there's evidence that women back then tended to go and draw water from the well in the early morning, right before it gets really, really hot and miserable. They would go early, and they tended to do it together. It was a, a social affair, an opportunity. And so the fact that she is alone in the heat of the day, what well, could be an indication that she is a bit of a social outcast. And the fact that she has had five husbands and now has a man who is not her husband must reveal some sort of a, a soul hunger and a heart thirst that she is seeking to satisfy through these relationships and, and what she thinks they provide for her. But it's clearly not working. And Jesus is clearly drawing her attention to that. And to be with a man who is not her husband, well, it's clearly, it's, that's sin. And sin, we know, separates. That sin has separated her from her God. It is that sin that Jesus has come to address, ultimately, to come and to die and to pay for. But first, here, he is making her aware of that sin and to make her aware of her need for who he is and what he has come to do. And so the first thing that we learn in this conversation on worship is that sin is a barrier to worship. Right? Your sin is a barrier to worship. And so we cannot talk about the nature of worship without first dealing with the nature of sin. That's what Jesus does. He doesn't do what many uh, do today and try and kind of sweep sin under the rug and kind of try to minimize the wrath and the judgment of God by not talking about that. Right? We're going to be more positive, encouraging Caleb. Let's not talk about that, that negative stuff. That's foolish. That's the whole point. That's the very reason that Jesus has come. No bad news, no good news. We can never ignore or minimize sin because God will never ignore or minimize sin. 
And Jesus' full knowledge of this woman's sin is a reminder to us that God has full knowledge of our sin. We cannot hide. Like many, maybe many of you, I was helped years ago greatly by the late R.C. Sproul in my discovery and appreciation of of good theology and, and the big God that it reveals. And it was from Sproul that I first heard of and learned that that fun Latin phrase, quorum Deo. And quorum Deo just simply means before the face of God. And Sproul would regularly argue that this was the essence of the Christian life. To, To be a Christian is to live one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, for the glory of God. It is consciously and intentionally living our whole life as if we were literally standing before the face of God. Because we are. I've shared with you before how I had a significant pornography problem for about 12 years of my young life. Introduced to it by some older boys at the age of 8 before I even knew what it was. I just knew that I liked it. And I was hooked. And I ran with it. And I am responsible for that sin. And for a while, between probably around 16 to 20, any moment that I had when I could be confident that my sin would not be found out, porn was what I was doing until the grace of God rescued me. But do you know when I never once looked at pornography, when I was never even once tempted to look at it, when I was in the presence of my father, when I was before my father's face. My dad's very presence and my desire not to displease and dishonor and disappoint my dad made it unthinkable and impossible for me to even consider looking at it in his presence. Well, guess what? The connection is clear. Your heavenly father is always present. Your entire life is lived entirely before his face. Always. And here's why we need doctrine. Here's why we need it burned into our brain. 1689 plug. Here's why we need the grace of God to help us actually begin to live what we believe. Chapter 2, paragraph 1. God's knowledge is infinite and infallible. He knows. You are in his presence. I am in his presence. Always. It is very good for us all to be reminded regularly that our every moment is lived before the face of the all-knowing God of perfect holiness. Galatians 6-7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. One of the most foreboding lines in scripture is 2 Samuel uh, 11-27. David is the king. He has all the power. He can do whatever he wants. He thinks he has wrapped up all these loose sins, the the abuse of this woman, the murder of her husband. He thinks he can get away with it and with his sin. Verse 27 of 2 Samuel 11. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Man, that should make us tremble. Isaiah 59 2. Your sins have made a separation between you and and your God. Sin separates. That's the very nature of sin. Sin prevents worship. So before you sort out your worship, you need to sort out your sin. Because that's ultimately what sin is. It is disordered, misdirected worship. 
Ultimately, whatever you're directing your worship towards, if it's not God, it ultimately comes back around to the worship of self and thus the rejection of God. And that's sin. And you obviously cannot reject God and then be right with God. You cannot reject God and worship God. So Jesus, because he loves this woman, starts with her sin. He is making her aware of her sin, to make her aware of her need. These six men and the satisfaction that she seeks in them are a result of her disordered desires, her disordered worship. And so he brings her sin to light. After addressing the true nature of her need, he then turns to address the true nature of worship. So point number two, you must worship God in truth. We're going to start with truth, not spirit. And if that's true, we both have to rightly define God and rightly define worship. But first, let's get there in the text. Jesus has called attention to her sin and to the obvious spiritual thirst that she is attempting to satisfy. But look at her response to this in verse 19. Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Odd. Again, some commentators are, don't know what to do with this. This is just a, a red herring. She's throwing up a smoke screen. Is this a diversion? Is she trying to redirect the conversation away from the sensitive subject of her sin? And I don't, I don't think so. First, notice what she says. Notice what's implied in what she says. You are a prophet. What is that? That's an implicit admission of guilt. She doesn't say, no, 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 you're, you're crazy. You don't know what you're talking about. I haven't been married five times. I'm not with this guy. No, 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 no. No, she says, oh, I, I can see that you're a prophet. You're right about me. You are right about my sin. And so maybe where she goes next isn't all that random. Because it is she that explicitly translates the conversation, transitions the conversation to worship. Verse 20, she goes on. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So remember, we're, we're back to the conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans that was introduced in verse 9. And much of that conflict revolved around worship. Much of that revolving around the place of worship. Remember, the Samaritans rejected Jerusalem as the place, and they worshipped on Mount Gerizim. Notice that she says, on this mountain. So where they are at Jacob's well, again, we know where Jacob's well is. We think it's the same one. If that's where it is, well, Mount Gerizim would have been right there, looming in the background. They would have been able to see it while they are having this conversation about worship. And remember that the Samaritans had built their own temple on Mount Gerizim in rival to the one in Jerusalem. The Jews didn't like that. And so about 150 years before this conversation, the Jews had come in and they had destroyed the Samaritan temple. And so some commentators propose that Jesus and the woman would have been able to see the very ruins of that temple on the mountain as they spoke. Now, these truly are worship wars. The stakes are high. Worship matters. And look at Jesus' response to her. Let's read the whole of 21 through 24 again. This is the main idea. Look at the repetition of the word worship. Verse 21. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. 
For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So this is about worship. Let's finally define it. This is one of those Christian jargony words that we can tend to just kind of throw around without really understanding. I've made the claim that you are a worshiper and that you are always worshiping. What does that mean? Right? What, what is worship? Well, let's start with the text and the Greek word that we have translated worship. It's kind of a fun word. It's um, uh, proskuneo in the Greek, which is a compound of two Greek words. Pros just means to or toward, and kuneo, which just means to kiss. Some, this is debated, some argue that kuneo is based upon the Greek word for dog, which is kuon, and so it's a reference to like a dog licking his master's hand, right? There's the master and there's the dog, right? So the dog is low, the dog licks the master's hand, kuon becomes kuneo, uh, it means to kiss. But generally this word referred to the practice of bowing down and kissing the ground before a king. That was, that was worship, that was prostrating yourself before a superior person. Right? He is great, uh, you are not. He is high, you are low. And so one of the ways you would acknowledge that and honor his place, his superiority, was by getting low. Sometimes kissing his ring or kissing the ground. We read Psalm 96 a few minutes ago. In Psalm 95, verse 6, we read, Oh, come let us worship and bow down. Right? Let us kneel before the Lord. Why? Because he's our maker. He is our God. He is high. We are not. And so we acknowledge that, and we honor him by getting low. And so worship, at its most basic, is a recognition and an acknowledgement of the supremacy and superiority of another. And then it is responding accordingly. It's giving honor, respect, reverence, praise, glory to that other. And so worship, most simply, is the right response to the person and work of God. It is the, the proper response of the creature to his creator. It is ascribing all glory and honor to him, rightfully so and delightfully so, because he's worthy, because he's good. And so we've talked before about how our English word, worship, comes from kind of more of an old English term, which was originally worth-ship. Right? So, so worship, then, it's, just, it's all about ascribing worth to something. No, worship is a response to perceived Worth. We, we worship that which we find the most valuable. It is a response to perceived beauty. We worship that which we find the most beautiful. Scripture talks about the, the glory of God regularly. Right? God does all things for his own glory. What is God's glory? Remember, it's like, it's like the, it's the shining forth. It's the display of his eternal excellence. God's glory is the, the shining or showing of God's greatness. Scripture also then talks about glorifying God. What does that mean? Well, to glorify God must then be the right response to his glory. And so most simply, to glorify or to worship God, it's just to say, whoa, this is really good. He is really good. You've, you've got to see this. I enjoy this. Come and enjoy this too. That, that's worship. My sister is an amazing cook, um, but I've always enjoyed the fact that she says that I am her favorite person to cook for. Why am I her favorite person to cook for? 
It's because, apparently, I'm told this, it's because I'm such an expressive eater. I'm glad Nicole is not here because Nicole makes fun of me for this. I enjoy food. I, I delight in food. And so when my sister or my wife or Deanna brought us food today, and I, I'm trying to not be distracted, I'm so excited about the food that I have from Deanna. When I have wonderful food, I, just, I cannot help myself. I have perceived the value, I've perceived the beauty, I've perceived the glory and the deliciousness of such food, and so I respond accordingly. I devour that food, and I devour it audibly. I moan, and I make noise. My enjoyment of the food is very evident, apparently, and how vocal and excited I am about that food. And my sister, so then, is, she's, she's honored and she's pleased because it's so obviously evident that I am enjoying and delighting in her food. That's, that's worship. Worship is all about what you love. It's all about what you live for. And those things will demonstrate themselves in your life, right? If I said, oh, I love this food and I really, really love it, and I'm sitting there like, my wife, I have to be careful because Melissa can know when I don't think something's very good. If I don't, so sometimes I have to like a little bit, oh yeah, really good. I got to be careful, right? Because she can read and know, oh, he doesn't like this because it's so obvious. And when I love something, I express that. We talked about the same thing last week with the phrase football is life or, or whatever sport is life. We're expressing, this is what I love. This is what I live for. That's, that's what worship is. And so if that's true, that means that worship is and is about far more than we tend to think that it is. This is not exclusively when and where we worship. Songs are not exclusively worship. In fact, many songs out there with the label worship are not worship at all. But the point is, created in the image and likeness of God, created for the express purpose of knowing him and enjoying him, created to exist in a responsive relationship revolving around his perfect beauty and his absolute glory, you are wired for worship. You cannot not worship. And you are always doing it. You worship whatever it is that you value and enjoy the most. And whatever that thing is, is the most important thing to you. It is what you have given yourself to. Right, consider the Ten Commandments. The first four, vertically oriented, all about our relationship to God. You think about it, they're all about worship. Right, the first commandment warns against worshiping the wrong God. The second then warns against worshiping the right God the wrong way. Or you could say the first is about the right object of worship, the second the right manner of worship, the third the right attitude of worship, and the fourth the right time of worship. You see, the point is God cares greatly about our worship because God cares greatly about his glory. And God cares greatly about us and he knows that we will only find satisfaction and life in reference to him. And so notice the language that Jesus uses. He doesn't say, well, you may worship. Or, hey, you know, here's some good suggestions for worship. Take it or leave it. No, he says you must worship in this way. You must worship in truth. What does that mean? Well, pretty simple. It means that we must only worship God in accordance with what he has revealed to us about himself and how he is to be worshipped. You see, the who determines the how. The how is dependent on the who. If you do not know the who, if you have not heard from him, if you are not listening to him, then you're going to get the how wrong. Proper worship 
is predicated on proper knowledge of the God worshipped. And this is why we are encouraging the 1689. This is why we teach theology and delight in doctrine, because it's all about him. It's all about knowing him, the one who is life. And we want you to know him more. And we do that through the word, and we do that through the theology and the doctrine that that word contains. He's the one who has told us that we must worship him in a certain way in accordance with who he is in truth. Like similarly, right? I, I do not get to determine how my wife desires to be related to and what honors and, and pleases her. I don't get to just declare that. Some of you probably know that Melissa despises ketchup with this irrational white hot passion. I, don't, I even have to rinse the plates with ketchup on it because she can't get near. I have to squeeze it. I have to open the packets. It doesn't make any sense. I don't get to then decide that I'm going to love her and bless her by buying her a giant bottle of Del Monte ketchup, which is the best, that's the best brand. I don't get to decide that that's what I'm going to bless her with because I love Del Monte ketchup. This is what I love, and so I'm going to love her by giving her this thing. No, that's absurd. Right? She is a person. Who she is, in large part, determines how I relate to her. My job is not to declare to her how she is going to feel loved and blessed. My job is to learn her and to study her and to love her and then bless her in the way that honors her. In a much more important way, who God is determines how he can and must be worshipped. He decides. We do not get to decide. He declares. We submit. You've probably heard the famous line from A.W. Tozer's Knowledge of the Holy. I think I've used it a lot, but it's just, it's excellent. Consider this. Consider what he says. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What do you think is the most important thing about you? What would you say that is? Tozer says, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing. He goes on. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Catch this. Worship is pure or base, uh, low, not good, as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church always is God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of individual Christians, but of the company of Christians that we call the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Catch that. That's, 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 that's profound. He says, whether worship is pure or base, right or wrong, good or bad, is entirely dependent on how the worshiper thinks of God. The most important thing about you is how, what your mental conception and belief of God is. What's most important about this church is our concept of God. Nothing is more important than our theology of God. Your your doxology is dependent on your theology. As J.I. Packer used to say, the purpose of theology is doxology. Listen, that's why we're emphasizing theology. It's for the purpose of praise, right? The purpose of doctrine is worship. And so Jesus says, 
God must be worshipped in truth. That involves good, deep, hard thinking about God. That involves uh, giving ourselves uh, to knowing him and to reading his revelation and to understanding it and and summarizing it and systematizing it. Uh, We can only worship him in accordance with his word. You see, the world world is full of sincere people sincerely sincerely worshiping the wrong God. The word is full of sincere people sincerely worshiping the right God the wrong way because their worship is not based on Upon his word. And again, going back to Sunday school, this is why we want to be so word centered here. It's because this word is it's living and active. It's the words of eternal life. It is the revelation of God. It is literally God speaking to us, communicating to us, communing with us, telling us who he is and how we can know him. And that itself is life. Uh, Legan Duncan uh, argues that it is a lack of love of the word of God. It is the one of the main reasons why our worship is often seemingly so cold. Duncan says, there is no hunger for the word of God. There is no love for the Bible. We have 19 Bibles at home and 18 of them are collecting dust. We have no sense of appreciation of how special a thing it is to hear the word read and proclaimed. Our people take it for granted that they just come to church and hear the word of God read. We should never, ever take that for granted. Because the only way that you can worship God, who is spirit, is if God has revealed himself. And he has. He has revealed himself in his word. It is by his truth that we commune with him. It is the most enormous privilege in the world to be able to hear God's word. Do do we count this as the most enormous privilege in the world Again, not because you get to hear from me, right? Because of the word. Because we have that word proclaimed to us. There are still a couple billion people in the world that don't have access to this. This is why missions are so important, right? So that that word can be proclaimed, so that people can know and worship the Lord. Church, we are greatly privileged. We have the word. And the word is the only way that we can worship God. And so examine your worship. And by that I mean examine your life. And examine it in light of God's word. Are you responding to him and relating to him based upon his revelation to you? If you must worship God in truth and you do not know or live in light of that truth, then you must not be worshiping God. And that's death. Point number three. Panic not. Point four will be very short. Number three. You must worship God in spirit. Verse 24. One more time. Note the connection again between who God is and how he must be worshipped. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. God as spirit demands worship in spirit. You know, what, what does that mean? Well, first off, spirit is the essence and the nature of God. If you have kids, at some point they will ask you, you keep talking about this God guy, why can't I see him? Well, here's your answer. Because he's a spirit. And our nature is flesh. His nature is spirit. We are material. He is spiritual. No one has seen God, Scripture tells us. And therefore, we must relate to him spiritually, based upon his very nature. And in this context of the conversation, what Jesus is, is saying in part is that the where no longer matters. Right? Consider the conversation they've been having. Is it this mountain or is it this mountain? He's saying, no, no, no. That's not what matters. It's the who and the how. 
that matters. Listen, there is no such thing as sacred space, right? We've got to get that. We still talk sometimes about Israel as the Holy Land. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, there is no such thing as sacred space. There is no special, more holy place that you must go to meet and worship God because God has come, because Christ has come. So at minimum, to worship in spirit means that worship is no longer confined to a specific locality. But I think this means more than that as well. Uh, to worship God in spirit, that's what he is. We have a spirit as well. So to worship him and relate to him on that level must mean to worship God in the very depth of our inner being. Right? Kind of the core of this argument is that, hey, it's not just about the outward or about the physical. It's about the inward. It's about the heart, the spiritual. So worship in spirit and truth is worship in which our entire hearts, our whole person is engaged and which is done so in full harmony with God's truth as revealed in God's word. And so to worship God is to know God as he has revealed himself and that it is to respond to God with our whole person. Right? Think of how I respond to food. Right? That's worship, to respond with our whole lives, recognizing, rejoicing in the glory and the beauty and the value that we perceive in Okay, this is the first question of the Shorter Catechism. The whole thing starts with worship. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's worship. That's our main purpose. That's what we were created for. That's the design that when we live in accordance with, we find freedom and fulfillment. And it's all because of the who. It's all because of who God is in his very being. I was reading again this week, Thomas Watson. He's my favorite right now. Uh, Thomas Watson writes this. He says, God is the sumum bonum. Fancy Latin again. Just the chief, the highest good. Therefore, the enjoyment of him is the highest felicity, pleasure. He goes on as only Puritans can. He is a universal good. Um, he is a good in which are all other goods. The excellencies of the creature are limited, but in God are contained all excellencies. He is a good commensurate fully to the soul, a son, a portion, a horn of salvation in whom dwells all fullness. And he keeps going. I'm not going to read all these. He says God's an unmixed good. God is a satisfying good. God is a superlative good. God is an eternal good. God, catch this one, 17th century Puritan. We get the Puritans wrong. God is a delicious good. We've so mischaracterized the Puritans. Listen to what Watson writes on this one. That which is the chief good must ravish the soul with pleasure. There must be in it rapturous delight and quintessence of joy. The love of God drops such infinite suavity. You know, let's, let's bring that word back. It means that which is pleasant or pleasing. The love of God drops such infinite suavity into the soul as is unspeakable and full of glory. That's the Puritans. That's how they speak of how good God is and how good it is to know him. And it is good to pursue that which is most good. Right? That's, that's obvious, right? And to pursue God, to worship him, is to find that which ravishes our souls with pleasure and fills us with delight and joy. It is to find in him, to find your supreme joy, to see him as your chief good, to enjoy him as such, and to live accordingly. That's worship. It's, it's the whole soul glad response of your entire person and life 
to his goodness and grace. That's how you honor and worship him. Oh, I, I honor my sister. Oh, this food is good. I honor her and I worship her. God, regularly, I'm thinking, oh, oh, this thing is good. He is good. He has blessed me with this thing. He has ordained uh, this thing. Whatever my God ordains is right. Oh, he is good. Like, I, I'm worshiping him as I'm looking at what he is doing and as I am taking pleasure in it and affirming it and delighting in it. That's worship. And isn't that so much bigger and better than just singing some songs? The whole of your life is worship. And it is meant to be for and focused on him. And so we've got to get this right. Worship is not first uh, about you. It is not first for you. We do not gather today seeking some sort of worship experience. Right? The primary question is not, hey, how does this make you feel? Or what does this do? for you. Worship is not about your experience. It's not some sort of vague, undefined God feeling. That's why we don't lower the lights. Right? That's why we don't flash things. We have wonderful, brilliant musicians. Right? But we're not trying to, to wow or impress or to create something within you uh, through their mastery and their skill. No, we don't determine whether worship was good or not based upon how it made you feel or how strongly it moved you. And I can be moved by good food or a good sporting performance or all kinds of things. That's not what we're working on here. It's, it's pretty impressive that we can take worship and make it about what it is precisely not about, which shouldn't be that surprising because we're sinners. We're the masters of this. And I used it again in Sunday school, the essence of sin, Latin phrase. Remember, in curvitas in se, right? Sin is this curving in. It is this turning in on oneself. We've even done that to worship. And so we ask or we think, what did the service do for me? today? Or, or we, what did I get out of the service? And we base our answer largely on how we feel, when that's actually the wrong question entirely. Right? The question should be, well, what did the service do for God today? Not, not what did I get out of the service, but what did I give to God who gave himself up for me? Not how was I pleased, but how was he honored? It's, it's amazing. We take this whole thing, which is about and for him, and we make it entirely about and for us. That's why the worship wars of like the 80s and 90s existed. That's why some churches in the South still, I don't know if that's the thing still up here, but I saw it while we were down there. Some churches still have a traditional service in the morning and a contemporary service uh, later in the morning. That's a problem. This is why people get so upset about song selection, right? Because we all implicitly assume that the service is about and for us and about uh, fulfilling and satisfying our desires. It's not at all. Yes, of course, we benefit and are blessed by the service. Yes, of course, we are served and sanctified, but it is not by our focus and demand on our wants and preferences. We are benefited and blessed as our attention, remember sin, if sin is curving in on ourself, grace, what it does, it turns us back out away from ourselves. And so we are blessed as the grace of God through worship turns us back away from our selfish focus on ourselves, and, and he fixes and focuses our attention on the one in whom we find life. See, one of the great paradoxes of the faith is that we are most served and we receive the most good not by seeking to be served, and seeking our own good, but by seeking him and by serving him, the one in whom our entire good is found. So we have this tendency. Uh, we've taken worship in spirit and perverted it to worship 
of self. It's very easy to think that we are worshiping God when we are doing nothing but worshiping self or worshiping our experience or seeking our, our own pleasure instead of his pleasure. And when we do that, worship actually then becomes idolatry. Pop quiz, what was the name of the golden calf in Exodus 32? Pop quiz, what was its name? Anybody? Yahweh. Yahweh was the name of the golden calf. Aaron makes the calf and then declares a feast to Yahweh. They thought they were worshiping God. They were not. And so for it to be true worship, it must be worship in spirit and truth. Worship in accordance with God's self-revelation contained in his word and worship involving our whole self, our whole life. For this is the first great commandment. The first great commandment is about worship. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That's what worship is. A.W. Pink puts it like this. He says, worship is a redeemed heart occupied with God. I love that. Worship is a redeemed heart occupied with God, expressing itself in adoration and thanksgiving. Are you occupied with God? That's, that's what worship is. But how can we sinners be occupied with worship, respond, and relate to a God of perfect holiness? Point number four, very quickly, Jesus Christ is both who and how you worship. Look at verse 25. The woman again responds. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. Remember, Messiah and Christ mean the same thing. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And here's the most important part. Let's fix this in our minds. Let's end with this. Verse 26. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Here is the truth that we most need to worship the God of perfect holiness. We need to know his Christ. We need to know his Messiah, his anointed one. And this is actually the only time before his trial in John's gospel that Jesus will willingly take the name Messiah to himself. Remember, throughout Mark and the other gospels, he say, hey, don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody. Oh, he tells this woman. Again, this is a wonderful demonstration of, of his love and grace. But it's his identity that's just the most amazing thing. It is who he is and who this book is written to reveal that is most amazing. Because as the very verse, first verse of this whole book makes clear, the word was God. And Jesus, I think, is making that same claim here. Remember, the most and greatest intimate revelation of God is given to Moses in Exodus 3 when he reveals his name to Moses as I am. I am existence itself. That's, that's who God is. And then throughout the Gospel of John, we are going to see these strange grammatical constructions where it doesn't make a whole lot of sense apart from the fact that it seems that Jesus is taking that name and claiming that name for himself. The Greek of this verse literally reads, I who speak to you, the subject's already there, I who speak to you, I am. That's kind of how it probably should be translated. I am the word made flesh. I am the God that you are to worship. I have come down, become a man, to solve the problem, point number one, of your sin that separates you from me and that prevents your worship of me. I have come not only to tell you what to do, but to do for you what needs to be done. Yes, you must worship in spirit and truth, but your sin prevents that. It puts a barrier between you and God. I've come to remove the barrier. 
I've come to tear the curtain and to do so by dying for your sin. Hey, remember those six husbands? Remember all the sin? Uh, taking all of that sin. Hey, remember those 12 years of my young life? Remember your countless number of sins? He says, I have come to take all of those sins on me and to die for those. He came to save us so that we could worship, so that we could do the thing that we are created to do, so that we could find the life and joy and delight and fulfillment in the God that we rejected. That's the gospel. The good news that Jesus came to take our place, to take our sin, to live and die and rise again in our place for the forgiveness of sins and thus to restore us to relationship with God, which is worship. And so he ends this conversation of worship by saying, I am. That's a God worthy of worship. He is worthy so much more than just some songs or an hour of your time once a week. He is worthy of your whole life. He is worthy of your whole heart, of all your time and attention, your love and affection, your everything, because that's what worship is. It is the only right and logical response to who Jesus is and what he has done. Do you know him? You must worship him in spirit and truth. Are you? Do you love him and delight in him? Are you increasingly occupied with him? Does he fill your thoughts? Is your mind fixed to some degree on who he is? Is there a gladness within you because of who he is and what he has done? That's worship. And we grow in that by learning of him and by studying him. And by the grace of God, the Spirit takes that knowledge. Uh, the more we know, then he, he builds within that uh, delight and love. And so we will then be able to worship him better. But he does it through his word. And he does it through this knowledge uh, that tells us who he is. And we see, oh, he's really that great. Oh, he's really that good. I love him. I'm glad in him. God is so much bigger and better than we, we can begin to imagine. Let me close with Jonathan Edwards. It's a wonderful quote that glorifies Christ and encourages us to worship him. Here's Edwards, and I'm done. He says, true saints, remember we're talking about true worship, true saints center their attention on Christ, and his beauty transcends all others. His delight is the source of all other delight. He in himself is the best among 10,000 and altogether lovely. These saints delight in the way of salvation through Christ because it demonstrates God's affection and wonder. They enjoy holiness and wholeness and they take no pleasure in sin. God's love is a sweet taste in their mouths regardless of whether their own interests are met or not. They rejoice over all that Christ has done for them. But this is not the deepest root of their joy. No, they delight merely because God is God. And only then does their delight spill over into all God's works, including their salvation. That's worship. He says, center your attention on Christ and worship him because he is altogether lovely. Let's pray as we close. Father, we confess that we all of us fall woefully short of true worship in spirit and truth. We thank you for Jesus Christ who has come to deal with the sin that separates us from you. 
He has come to deal with the sin that even remains for those of us who are yours as we still uh, struggle to transition our, our trust and our love from self to you. Father, help us and help us through your word as your spirit works to open our eyes more and more to better understand the height and depth and the love of Jesus Christ, which surpasses everything. So, Father, show us Christ. Father, show us how big, show us how glorious and good he is and capture our hearts with him. We want our entire lives to be lived um, in awareness of him and in his presence and, and before your face, Lord. And we all of us have a long way to go. So I pray that you would help us. I pray that you would work in and through the, uh, the reading of your word as we go back into our weeks. Father, help us to eat. Forgive us for how we tend to starve ourselves. Father, drive us to your word this week uh, individually. And then, Father, corporately help us as we seek uh, together as a church uh, to know you and to love you and then to encourage one another in that knowledge and in that love. Um, Father, make Woodside Community Church uh, a place where uh, you are glorified and, and you are worshipped and, and you are first, Lord. We desperately need your help um, to do that. Um, so we're so thankful that we have the privilege and the blessing uh, to worship you this morning. And Father, you have been very good and gracious to us. We ask that you would continue now uh, to work uh, through your word on our hearts and our minds and make us like Jesus. We ask and we pray all this in his name. Amen.